doctors Josephine Forbes, who's actually an MD PhD, and Dr. Sherman Lung, who's a PhD, joining us from uh, University of Queensland um, to discuss all the rage, a novel target for prevention of type 1 diabetes. Just a quick bio um, on both of them. Uh, Dr. Forbes is a translational researcher performing bench-to-bedside -bed studies on novel therapies to prevent type 1 diabetes and, major and a major complication, kidney disease. Currently, she's based at Mata Research, the University of Queensland, Queensland in Australia, and she is the Australian Diabetes Society president-elect, the previous chair of the Diabetes Australia Research Program, and an editor board member for journals including Kidnia International. She's also continually in the top 2% of scientists globally in Stanford University's annual listings with an H index of 61 and has published 200 research articles with uh, over 15,000 citations and three patents. She's received numerous prizes for her research, including the Commonwealth Health Minister's Award for Excellence in Health and Medical Research in Australia. And we're very excited to have her back. Our first uh, conversation with her was in just at the start of the pandemic uh, in 2020. Dr. Sherman Long, uh, a quick bio sketch on him, is the head of research uh, operations at Wesley University Institute in Australia, which is the official research partner for Uniting Care, encompassing the four Uniting Care Hospitals in Queensland, as well as Lifeline, Blue Care, and Family and Disability Services. He's a PhD trained scientist, conducting his research training under the leadership of Dr. Forbes at Modern Research, University of Queensland. His recent work on the preventative therapy for type 1 diabetes has been published in Diabetes, receiving the cover image. Ooh, that's awesome. And an in this issue feature and shared across the Australian Wide 7 Network News. He has extensive experience in clinical trials, having worked at Microba, uh, Microba Life Sciences, an ASX listed biotech startup, and Nucleus Network, Australia's largest early phase clinical trial site, having overseen the con um, conduct of several high profile COVID 19 projects, including that of Nuvaxoid. Uh, Nuva and Novavax that is now authorized for use by the TGA, EMEA, and FDA across many jurisdictions worldwide. Thank you both very much for joining us. I'm really excited to hear about uh, the work you've been um, doing uh, down under there in Australia. Thanks, Monica. It's our very great pleasure to be presenting to you today. Um, and what we're going to do is present some of our research program, which is around all the rage and why rage might be a novel target for the prevention of type 1 diabetes. Um, this is certainly a slide that you'd all be familiar with. And we know that diabetes is a major global problem. It's a, it's a pandemic. Um, it doesn't get as much attention as COVID, but in all seriousness, it needs to be starting soon. Um, but what you probably don't appreciate as much is why we study type 1 diabetes. Now, we all know the patient burden. We all know the importance of this disease. But some other underappreciated facts are that actually, even though it only makes up about 10% of the cases, it's around about 40% of the economic burden of diabetes to most governments. So it actually also costs our um, healthcare budgets a lot of money. It's a very complex clinical management um, it, it often has an early life onset. It is increasing globally in westernized nations, particularly in countries such as China, India, and Saudi Arabia. And certainly it, it comes, or what comes with type one diabetes is a risk for early death from complications such as high and low blood sugar emergencies and often kidney and cardiovascular disease. This is a slide that you're probably extremely familiar with, but we all know that there are a number of stages that um, are happening in type one diabetes before the clinical diagnosis. And this has enabled us to think about 
intervening, I guess, in some of these stages and what the pathogenesis might be and what are some of the unique targets that we might be able to look at to provide therapeutics to stop this progression to clinical diagnosis. So the receptor for advanced glycation end products is probably something you haven't heard too much about in type 1 diabetes per se from an immunological perspective. But certainly in complications of diabetes, this has been a major player um, with respect to the pathogenesis of things like kidney and cardiovascular disease because it's involved in the development of vascular complications, particularly atherosclerosis and kidney disease. Um, the receptor for advanced glycation uh, end products is a very promiscuous receptor. It has a number of very important physiological roles. It's involved in host pathogen defense, T cell priming, antigen presentation, in particular by dendritic cells and other major antigen presenting cell subtypes. Um, and it has a critical role in macrophage recruitment. You can see here that it has a number of different ligands. And we think the conditions that it binds to these ligands under are very different. For example, HMGB1 and the S100 calgranulins are probably the initiators of things like your standard inflammatory and immune responses. So they're part of those DAMP processes. And advanced glycation end products are something where we believe it needs to hit a particular threshold to bind to RAGE. Something else you probably don't know about RAGE is that it's actually located in the HLA region. So it lives in the MHC class three region, right in between MHC class two and one, which we all know is a major susceptibility loci for the development or susceptibility to type 1 diabetes. So my slides aren't advancing as fast as my mouth is talking. <laughs> um, and so one of the things we were interested in, because this rage does sit in this particular region, we were interested in seeing whether polymorphisms in this gene actually were associated with the development of type 1 diabetes. And indeed, we could show in a population where we had control for the HLA. So obviously we, we were thinking that perhaps RAGE might be co-inherited with some of these things. So we wanted to understand and unpack that a little bit more. So what we did was we only looked at people who had um, the same HLA risk in their background. And we could see that two particular polymorphisms increased risk for type one diabetes development. And there was a third one, which actually lowered the risk for type one diabetes. And so this was particularly interested. These are quite an, a number of, so there was about 641 cases, but this is a nested case control study from a larger cohort, very generously provided to us by Mikhail Neep and by um, the Henrik Group, who are both in, in Finland, which has the highest incidence of type 1 diabetes in the world currently. What's most interesting about these particular genotypes is though, or these SNPs, is that they actually are functional SNPs and they change the concentration of a protein called circular rage in, in the bloodstream. And so those that provide susceptibility to type 1 diabetes, such as this particular change, actually provides for people have lower amounts of soluble rage in their blood when they are from a population who is at risk of developing type 1 diabetes. So these particular samples are taken from young children before or those who we know develop type 1 diabetes later in life. Something else we know is that those that actually encode for protection seem to either remain unchanged or actually have higher levels of soluble rage in their circulation. So we know not only is this change, but there is actually a functional um, outcome. And a very um, talented postdoc who is also a paediatric endocrinologist in Mikhail Neep's group 
did a project that we were also involved with looking at soluble rage in identically matched patients. And so this was a really hard study to recruit for because these are all these people are exactly the same age. They have exactly the same duration. They have the, the before seroconversion samples. And we could show, in fact, that during the seroconversion stage and then over the next three years, soluble rage actually decreased. And so this was where we were looking approximately in that study I showed you previously at the concentrations. And you can see quite clearly that three years after seroconversion, something's going on. But certainly at seroconversion, it's on its way down. We also know that the plasma soluble rage in another nested case control, which was taken from 16,000 individuals, but you know the nested case control was 1,000 individuals. Um, and so it, it showed that there was an association between soluble rage and the severity at presentation of type 1 diabetes. So it also told us that during that period where soluble rage was changing, there was also this, this impact on the severity in which type 1 diabetes was presenting as. What was also very nice, and this is some of Sherman's work, um, and this is unpublished data, but this is from the NPOD, um, the Network for Pancreatic Organ Donors. We didn't know whether rage was actually um, also expressed in other tissues, um, such as the pancreas. And so we actually had a look at this in patients with type 1 diabetes, and we could clearly show these are controls in the blue. These people here are, have, um, auto, have autoantibodies, and these people here have type 1 diabetes. And so we could clearly see that there were changes perhaps in the ligands for the receptor for advanced glycation end products and a significant increase from autoantibody positivity in the amount of rage in the islet. And we'll come back to that a little bit later and talk, talk some more about that and why that might be important. But another experiment that we did was that actually a failed kidney experiment that I did where I wanted to induce kidney disease by injecting a rage ligand. And so we actually did it in two ways. We injected AGEs at a level where we thought we could reproduce the, the level seen in diabetes. Um, and we also fed AGEs because they can also come to you from the diet. And so that's another particularly important point. We're not going to dwell too much on that today, but you can actually um, intake advanced glycation end products in quite significant amounts from a Western diet. And what we also did was intervene with a, an anti-AGE or an age-lowering therapy in this context. So what we could see is that, in fact, the AGEs, the rage ligands, did, in fact, go to areas that we thought were important for the development of type 1 diabetes. So the spleen and the pancreas, as an example here. What we also showed was that this was not the case in our um, mice with um, an AGE knockout, a rage knockout mice. Apologies. What was even more important, though, is that we actually saw three major things that we didn't expect. So again, remembering that this was designed as a kidney experiment, but we were looking at glucose control at the time as well. And we showed quite clearly that, in fact, there was an impairment in particularly in first phase insulin secretion. And we all know that's an important uh, step in the development of type 1 diabetes. There's this autoimmunity, there's this loss of first phase insulin secretion, and that is those two factors together are very strong predictors of who is going to develop type 1 diabetes. And so we can see both the high age diet and a high dextrose diet, which is a high sugar polymer diet, which also increases your levels of AGEs in the circulation almost to an equal extent. And we can see that there was a very big change in this um, insulin secretion. And we could also see that that was reversed with um, allergy bring chloride, which is an AGE lowering therapy. 
But what was even more surprising was that we could see that there was this infiltration. Now, in this instance, this is macrophages because this is what we were looking at at the time. But you can see that there it looks familiar to us in type 1 diabetes, that there's this peripheral infiltration of particular cell type and that it's also seen inside the islet and this is not there in the other groups. Can you just comment on what was that um, drug that you used that's used? Yeah, to yeah. so allergy-brain chloride is a very sad story. Um, it we got to phase two, late phase two clinical trials for diabetic kidney disease. Uh, so it was being tested in patients. It was also being tested for heart failure. And unfortunately, the financial crisis, I think the company was called Simvista, and the global financial crisis took away or, or they fell to the global financial crisis. And because of that, what happens is the patent is tied to the bankruptcy of the company. And so the patent is, is essentially lost until it runs out of steam. So that's a very sad story of a, of a very efficacious compound which got lost. Um, and, and that's an important thing to remember. When we're thinking about drug development, there are all sorts of things that have to be considered along the way. And you know, Synvista was very actively pursuing these, both of these indications and quite, and the data we had were very promising from a diabetic kidney perspective. So yeah, it's a, it's a shame. Is that um, company based in Australia or was it? Based no, in no. So it's a US company. It was based US in New York. Company. Yeah. So it, it started as Alteon Corporation. So they had a couple of other drugs, which were not so great and not so specific, but this one was much better. And I wonder if you happen to know off the top of your head, when does that patent, uh, you know, in the next in the next couple of years, I believe, because we did we did have a conversation uh, about that, about well, what happens when that comes off patent? Do we have the ability to then chase that again? And certainly, I'll show you some data. I think it's on the next slide. Actually, uh, we might go to the next one because I'll show you actually that it reduces the incidence of type one diabetes. So this is it here in the. Um, thing here this is a low ag diet but the low ag diet here was only given for a short period of time so just just letting you know that we we have given low ag diets for longer periods of time and not taken them away and they actually also do improve the incidence of type 1 diabetes and certainly this hmgb1 ligand here if other this is other data from other people but i think there's another really good paper in diabetologia by another team showing that if you intervene and reduce this particular rage ligand, you can also interrupt the course of type 1 diabetes. I'll just sneak back to this one for one second. Our data up the top is not as exciting as this data, which is a, a, um, a study that was done in the UK. So it was done in school children. There were very large numbers. I think, Sherman, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was three or 4,000. And there were also twin pairs in this as well. And what they could show that on top of autoantibodies as obvious and known risk factors for the development of type 1 diabetes, the advanced glycation end product CML was an additive independent predictor for progression to type 1 diabetes in these children in the general population. So that was a very nice study that was done some time ago by this, this team here. So needless to say that it was really important to us to think about rage antagonists. Now, at this time, we already knew that allergy-brain chloride was not going to be available to us to continue to develop the type 1 diabetes, even though it was our um, compound of choice at the time. So we needed to think about whether or not we could target rage. And so Sherman, uh, I think I've got a couple more to talk about, but look, we, we know from our studies in kidney and cardiovascular disease that rage antagonists have a number of effects on the body. We anticipate that they have will have some preservation of beta cell function, 
because this has been shown in models of type 2 diabetes where rage has been knocked out or in fact altered um, in terms of its expression. And we also know that it has a number of modulating effects on um, particular cells involved in the development of type 1 diabetes. And it's also been shown to have a role in glucose tolerance. So there's a particular process in the muscle, muscle in particular, which involves rage in terms of the, um, the take up of glucose in terms of um, that pathway in the muscle and it's um, turning into glycogen. So this is um, a study just showing when we give soluble rage, where does it go in the mice? Um, so it certainly goes to lots of places and some of that data is under review. So I, I'm not going to show it today, but certainly this is one part of that data. And we can show that when we inject soluble rage, this is just a single, a single shot injection that we're showing here, that it in fact does go to the pancreatic islets. So if we, we actually can see it there. You can see it here. This is the red. Insulin is the the green, and obviously this is the immune cell infiltrate here. So we do know that it traffics to areas that are important for the development of type 1 diabetes. So it's not just about what's in the circulation, it's also about what's going to the tissues which are important for the development of type 1 diabetes. Um, what, we, what we had also previously published in that space was thinking about um, acute therapy for um, diabetes and whether or not we could give soluble rage being a biologic we didn't want to give it for a long period of time really important because people make autoantibodies and other things happen which are undesirable side effects for particularly young people we, we don't want to give something where the side effect profile is not acceptable you know they, these people we want them to live a long healthy life productive life and so what we do know in nod mice, which is a, a model we use sometimes to, to understand the development of type 1 diabetes and what might be useful, is that we can see that, in fact, in nod mice, they don't actually have a lot of soluble rage. And if you look at their skid counterparts at the same age, they actually have quite a lot of soluble rage. Now, this may be a nuance of the two particular subtypes, but that certainly piqued our interest as well and certainly went along with our hypothesis. So, Sherman, this is for you. So I'm Lovely. going to hand over now to Sherman, who was the first author on this paper to present some of his absolutely beautiful data. Thank you, Joe. So over the next few slides, I will share a bit of data that um, has contributed towards the S-Rage treatment paper that's now published in the Diabetes Journal. Um, as you can see on screen, there's two diabetes instance curves. And essentially in these experiments, what was conducted was the nod mice, which spontaneously developed type 1 diabetes or type 1 diabetes-like disease, they were either given a vehicle treatment, a control arm, or they were given one of two types of S-Rage regimens. And this was either S-Rage given twice daily at a dose of 25 micrograms, or it was S-Rage given once daily at a much higher dose, 100 micrograms. And most importantly, as um, Joe highlighted before, we were looking at giving this therapeutic in a very um, brief or defined therapeutic window from days 50 to 64 of life, as you can see on screen in the top left-hand corner. And following that treatment, we, we didn't treat any further and observed for the onset or development of autoimmune disease. And what we can see in these diabetes curves um, by those two graphs in the center of the screen is that certainly when mice were administered SRH, as seen by the red lines, there were significantly less mice that developed T1D. And this was reflected across two independent research sites, one in Australia, which was managed by ourselves at Master Research, um, as well as one other site in the US, which was managed by a pharmaceutical partner. And probably most interestingly, we, we almost see a dose-dependent effect where if mice were given S-Rage at the higher dose seen by the brown bar, 
um, we do do almost seem to have even less T1D onset, which is really reassuring um, to see. One thing we were really interested in looking at as well, um, apart from the onset of T1D itself, was the development of autoimmunity in the pancreatic islets. And as you can see on screen in the very top, um, there's a series of pancreatic islet images. And going from left to right, these are islets at increasing level of islet infiltration by the immune cells. And the dark purple cells certainly um, reflect the immune infiltrate within the islets. What we did see when mice were given SRH um, through the graphs at the very bottom is that certainly the infiltration of islets significantly decreased if the mice were given SRH therapy, which is consistent with the decreases in T1D onset that we saw on the previous slide. And that was very reassuring. Um, we saw this as a measure of proportion seen in the graph on the left, as well as the overall insulitis index seen in the graph in the center. And at the end of the study, when we actually looked at the number of islets, the total number of islets that we could count and quantify, um, mice that were given SRH actually had far more islets um, per tissue area, which was also very reassuring and consistent with the ability for SRH to um, modulate the onset of T1D in mice. Shown on screen here is a, a very seminal study, which I think most people are very aware of, um, which was led by Professor Kevin Herald in the US, as well as the type 1 diabetes trial net group. And certainly very um, pivotal data that showed that in relatives at risk of T1D, if they were administered to blizzamab and anti-CD3 antibody, that this disease modifying agent was certainly able to decrease the onset of type 1 diabetes as compared with the placebo arm. So very encouraging evidence and certainly demonstration that uh, therapeutics which target, um, in particular in this case, T-cells, um, are able to modulate the onset of disease pre-diabetes. Yes, I would also comment that that's been, you know, even validated even more yesterday with Sanofi's purchase of Prevention uh, uh, Bio uh, and one of their, uh, for 2.9 billion, and one of their assets was the TZ Shield, which is the teplizumab uh, asset. So, I think um, right. So this is the, this is a really great space for you guys to be in because there's an opportunity right for endotypes and for uh, multiple you know treatment um, or you know uh, druggable multiple druggable targets. So um, it's uh, it's very interesting to hear uh, what's next with you. Absolutely, fully agree. Very exciting, uh, Monica. And I, I guess what this slide shows here on screen at the moment is a bit of a schematic as to the um, a few of the type of major immune cell subtypes which are involved in T1D onset. And some of these obviously um, were able to be modulated by bitipolizumab. Um, and some of the ones that I'll highlight include the regulatory T cells, the T regs, including the IT regs, um, which interface with some of the other immune cell subtypes, such as the effector T cells, the T effectors, as well as the antigen presenting cells. Um, in addition to that, obviously, they contribute towards the production of certain anti inflammatory milieu, such as your cytokines. So if we go on to the next slide, um, how does this interface with the work that um, Josephine and, and myself worked on in this project? Um, well, certainly many of these immune cells express the rage receptor. Um, and shown on the very left is a diagram as to how the rage um, receptor actually binds various ligands. It includes ligands like your advanced glycation end products, AGEs, as well as HMGB1, your calgranulins, and a few other well-known, um, typically, acknowledged as pro-inflammatory ligands such as IAPP and LPS. And certainly the use of soluble rage or S-rage appears to scavenge these ligands as seen by the soluble rage um, schematic on the, on the top left. And some of the literature which has come out um, to date, um, if you can click next, 
um, certainly demonstrates that many of these immune cell subtypes do, do express rage. And these include, for example, the dendritic cells, which depend on rage for in vivo homing to the lymph nodes following um, antigen recognition. Um, the maturation of the DCs also appears to be influenced by one of the rage ligands, AGEs. The T cell activation um, process also appears to be uh, modulated by rage. And this is shown, I believe, in human T cells. This is the journal immunology paper, the second from the bottom. And also most recently, um, Professor Harold and his group in the US also found uh, these are in type 1 diabetes samples that the rage receptor and particular gene expression profiles for survival and inflammation um, were modulated by that pathway as well. So um, very exciting data that shows that rage may have an important role to play in T1D development. So after we looked at the onset of T1D itself and the infiltration of the pancreatic islets in our mouse models of type 1 diabetes, we wanted to look at the immune cell compartments to see if we were able to modulate the um, regulatory T cells um, as a proportion relative to the T effector cells, because certainly many disease modifying agents were appearing to look at this arm or this angle, including, for example, um, tiblizumab. And what we see on screen is a graph of characterizing two main lymphoid compartments, the pancreatic lymph nodes, as well as the spleen. And this is immediately after the therapy of estrage was given at day 64 of life, shown with that bright green arrow. And reassuringly, what we do see here is that in the local draining lymph nodes, the PLN, certainly the ratio of Tregs to the affected T cells increased. And as a crude measure, certainly seemed to suggest that there is an increase in an anti-inflammatory environment within that local environment. And while we didn't see this in the spleen, we certainly did see in the pancreatic lymph nodes, which provided some data that perhaps um, immunologically estrage was modulating um, the development of T1D. Yeah, that's we move on to fantastic. If we move on to the next slide, um, the next thing we wanted to look onto was how um, Tregs or the immune cell infiltrate looked like in the islets themselves. Certainly, we looked at the infiltration as a, um, I guess, a marker overall using H&E staying, but we wanted to see specifically if the regulatory T cell compartment within the islets changed themselves, which is exactly where the damage tends to occur in type 1 diabetes. And to do this, we performed some immunofluorescent staining using many immune cell markers, very standard ones. And after quantification of the amount of Tregs within the islets following SRH therapy, what we did see was that certainly um, immediately after the therapy was given at day 64 of life, as well as at the very end of the study at day 225 of life, um, the percentage of Tregs did significantly increase within the pancreatic islet tissue itself, which is reassuring. This associated with an increase in the insulin area. Um, again, something that one would probably positively associate with preventing the onset of type 1 diabetes. And shown in the very bottom left-hand corner, if we correlate these two measures, the percentage of Tregs against insulin area, um, we did see a positive association, um, which is something that we, we would have liked to see, um, which, which also tends to suggest that these two um, increases in Tregs and insulin appear to be associated in some manner. Sherman, quick question from the chat. How do you define the CD8 plot positive Tregs? Yeah, great question. So our definition of um, Tregs has, has been using standard markers, so CD3, CD4, FOXP3. Um, I believe in this project, we didn't look specifically at the CD8 Tregs, but certainly that was one of the areas for future investigation that we were, we were potentially interested in. So, so great question. Yeah, I could chime in there too. 
Um, we certainly concentrated on the CD40 regulatory cells for this paper, but we do know that, that the CD8 regulatory cell compartment was also looks very interesting and we're actively trying to design a more strategic panel to actually look at that a little bit better because the panel we were looking at was very much towards the CD4 compartment. Great, thanks for answering. Yeah, I thought the, one of the previous slides were showing CD8 T-Rex, but maybe I saw it wrong. If you can go uh, back. Actually, they were CD8 cells just generally. So the CD8, the total CD8 compartment. So we did have CD8 in there um, and we could define the CD8 compartment. But as you know, they're a very small subset of the, the T regulatory cell compartment. So we really need to make sure we've got enough starting cells as we go down the tree of gating to make sure that we're absolutely certain of the results we're getting, which is what we're doing now. Great. Thank you. Awesome. Fantastic. I'll keep, I'll keep going. Um, I guess mechanistically, we were very interested in um, these changes in terms of the T-regs and T-effector ratios. So the next question that we had um, when performing this project was whether or not the increases in T-regs were actually functionally relevant, whether that was just a numerical increase. Um, so we wanted to see if in the absence of T-regs, whether or not SRH therapy would still be efficacious. And um, the schematic on screen essentially shows the experiment that we conducted to test this. And we used a adoptive transfer model where we use not skid mice that don't normally develop type 1 diabetes because they're immune system deficient. And we transferred into these not skid recipients T cells that would cause type 1 diabetes. And following this transfer, we administered the treatment, which was either SRAGE um, or the control arm, the vehicle. And on top of that, we layered um, an isotype antibody or an antibody type that would actually deplete the regulatory T cells um, called anti-FR4 or anti-folate receptor 4 antibody. And essentially the hypothesis here was that we wanted to test whether or not um, if anti-FR4 was administered, whether or not SRAGE would still work. And within the duration of the study that we conducted, seen in the very bottom left-hand corner, um, certainly we did see that when SRAGE was given without the Treg depleting antibody seen by the red line, um, none of the mice developed T1D within that study duration. However, as shown by the blue line, um, particularly the diamond data points, when mice were given SRAGE, um, as well as antifolate receptor 4 antibody, which depletes the T-regs, um, about half of the mice actually developed type 1 diabetes, which demonstrates that in the absence of, of T-regs, SRH therapy didn't seem to be as efficacious. Um, we might move on to the next slide. Um, so we had a lot of preclinical data suggesting that SRH therapy um, may be effective and um, may be able to prevent T1D onset in vivo um, through a regulatory T-cell mechanism. But we wanted to see if there would be any translational relevance, whether or not um, one day this type of data may have relevance to, to humans or relatives at risk of T1D. So we started experimenting with human T regulatory cells. And in this study shown on screen, um, we isolated some human T-regs. These were CD4 T-regs and we co-cultured them with fluorescently labelled RAGE ligands. Um, in particular, we used the RAGE ligand advanced glycation end products, or AGEs. And what we found on screen is that certainly as the co-culture progressed in time, um, the fluorescence intensity of the human T-regs increased, suggesting that um, they were either binding or uptaking the um, advanced glycation end products, the RAGE ligands. However, if the T-regs were co-cultured in the presence of a RAGE antibody seen by the blue data points, um, the, fluorescence, the fluorescence intensity certainly was nowhere near as high, suggesting that a lot of that rage binding of AGE 
um, was occurring through the rage receptor. And on the very right-hand side, we, we have a bit of a control line where we simply incubated the Tregs with fluorescently labelled mock protein, human serum albumin. Um, and we didn't see a lot of fluorescence suggesting that the rage ligand binding was occurring in a specific way and it was occurring via potentially the rage receptor. We performed a few functional experiments as well um, in terms of human Tregs, and we did this just to confirm whether or not the administration of S-Rage would be able to promote not only the increased number, but actually the function, which is obviously also very important. And to do this, we performed a bit of a crude experiment. We performed a co-culture with human regulatory T-cells, as well as conventional T-cells or affected T-cells. And within this co-culture, we administered AGEs, um, and we either gave the co-culture a um, vehicle administration, which was essentially just um, buffer or S-Rage, which was S-Rage contained within that buffer. And what we did see um, is shown in the black and the red bars is that if the co-cultures were given S-Rage, seen in the red, we had a significant increase in the proliferation of Tregs. Um, however, if we look at the conventional T-cell compartments, um, we see a corresponding decrease in the proliferation of conventional T-cells, suggesting that certainly the Tregs do increase in growth and they are able to um, suppress the growth of the T-conventional cells as well. To layer on top of this study, we also used a few well-known inhibitors of typical T-cell proliferation pathways, and these included the two inhibitors, Wurtman and Intracerabine. And the rationale behind this was just to, um, one, use it as a positive control to confirm that these agents would decrease proliferation, but also to see if S-Rage would be modulating um, the proliferation of the Tregs through typical T-cell pathways. And certainly we did see this, and at increasing doses of Wurtman and Tricerabine, we do see decreasing proliferation of the Tregs, um, suggesting that the S-Rage effects do occur through standard pathways such as PAKT and mTOR. And the final study that we looked at, um, at least for this um, paper, was what the gene expression profile looked like in, in these human Tregs. And we, we certainly look at numerically an increase as well as functionally um, the Tregs are able to suppress T-conventional cells. But why exactly is that occurring? Um, what effects are rage ligands having on human Tregs at the subcellular level? Well, in this experiment, we administered um, a rage ligand, AGEs again, um, or the mock protein HSA, um, to human Tregs um, isolated in a monoculture. And following um, 72 hours of incubation, we collected the RNA and subjected it to a targeted analysis of RNA expression. And I think the technique we used was um, RNA nanostring. And what we see on screen is a comparison between AGE versus mock protein treated Tregs. And certainly there are many differences, as you can see in the top left-hand corner um, via PCA. But if we really drill down um, if we look at the volcano plot, we see there's a lot of downregulation of genes in particular. This is shown by the genes coloured in blue. Some of these genes, um, the audience will probably recognise, such as IL-7 receptor, um, STAT5 and STAT4, KLRB1. FOXP3 is actually in there as well, as well as GATA3, so, um, as well as IL-4. So many typical T-cell-related genes, as well as genes which are well-known to be critical for normal Treg function. Um, but it really was quite a long list. So what we did was we performed an enrichment analysis, and this is seen in part C on screen. And we really did see uh, downregulation of many uh, well-known pathways, such as the IL-7 pathway, the IL-2 pathway, as well as the JAK-STAR pathway, which are very critical for T-cell and Treg proliferation and growth. 
we performed an upregulation or upstream regulation analysis as well, just to see what impact these um, differentially expressed genes after AGE treatment would have on normal um, Treg function. And certainly, many of these upstream regulators were were critical genes for T cell function overall, such as CD28, uh, IL2, um, CD3, as well as IL4, and just to finish off the bioinformatics analysis, we performed a network neighborhood analysis seen in the very bottom and um, highlighted in green are the genes which are downregulated and in red, the genes which are upregulated. And certainly many of the genes which were downregulated were actually direct adjacent nodes or neighbors to the FOXP3 master regulatory gene for T-Rex, um, suggesting that in fact, many of the modulated gene expression profiles um, have relevance to, I guess, the overall identity and function of, of human T-Rex, which was, which was good to see. And so we might swap back to me now at this point. Um, and so with respect to this research, we're actually looking at innovative ways to give soluble rage as a short targeted ther therapy um, or a therapeutic intervention to prevent type 1 diabetes. And so we're doing that in a couple of different ways. Um, can't really say too much about those two different ways, but needless to say that they are, we are trying to find safe ways to give a short and targeted application of soluble rage. I mean, the great thing about the anti-CD3 therapeutic is that it's given as an IV infusion. And so in a nutshell, we could potentially piggyback um, soluble rage in there too. So that would be something that would be desirable, but obviously it needs to go through the proper regulatory process to ensure um, its safety profile. So, so is in, that a clinical trial yeah. that's happening in Australia right now? No. So the clinical trial that's happening in Australia is a, um, with respect to, we, we don't have any clinical trials running with RAGE at the moment. So I was going to show you something that we are hoping will move into clinical trials very soon uh, for a few different reasons. Um, and the, the soluble RAGE, we need to ascertain the, the method of delivery. So, which is what we're doing at the moment. So we hope okay. to have that data pretty soon. This is a project that um, Kevin Herald, who you know um, was the first author on the New England Journal of Medicine paper. So he's, he has also been interested in RAGE for a very long period of time. Um, and so we had some very generous funding from the JDRF to look at RAGE antagonists. So these are orally available antagonists. They're available from a particular US company. Um, and one of them had progressed to quite late stage clinical trials for a completely different indication. Um, and it, so it had already been given to some people with diabetes, again, a totally separate indication and it could prove and say, and so this is a particular experiment in humanized mice. So there's a mice with a human TB dendritic cell um, array. Um, and when you give these rage antagonists um, on a model where you would normally see rejection of a transplant, so in this instance, this is a skin graft transplant, you can actually see that the rage antagonist definitely prolongs and stops that. And so that gives us a little bit of information in that these rage antagonists have the ability to modulate the immune system overall in humans. And certainly we've done some preliminary experiments with quite a low dose. We went a very low dose first, um, just to see, again, we're thinking about safety, but we're at the moment we're dialing these doses up. But you can see here that there was certainly some improvement in type one diabetes development with two different rage antagonists. So these are orally available tablets which are easily taken by people to prevent the onset of type 1 diabetes. One of them, as I said, is in that was has proceeded to phase three, so it's a much easier pathway. The other one is still in preclinical development and hasn't done its first in human clinical trials yet. 
What is that, them, if I can ask, what is that t- a tablet typically prescribed for outside of? They're, they're not prescribed. So the one in phase three failed. It, it, the indication that they went after, which was you know totally separate to what we're looking at, I it see. failed for, from an efficacy perspective. So certainly passed all the safety endpoints and got to phase three, and it failed for the, for Alzheimer's disease. Which, okay, you know, rage is rage is a um, a receptor which is thought to be increased in Alzheimer's disease. Um, okay, what's also important to note here is that we're trying to give quite a, a more concentrated dose at the start and then to actually dial that dose down. So here, this is every day, and then we've dialed back to just a couple of times a week with the tablet. Again, trying to give the minimum dose to get the maximum effect. Um, and again, we're looking at some other studies at the moment. And we also know when we gave these, when we looked pre-diabetes, so this is actually before the development of type 1 diabetes or autoimmune diabetes in this model, that we actually also saw improvements in first phase insulin secretion and blood glucose control, which was evident on glucose tolerance tests. Um, And I'm happy to take questions about those things. We've got a lot more data and some of it will be coming out for publication. So you will see some of that. Um, we've, We've been talking with the biotech company and they're very generously agreed that one part of that can come out very soon so we hope to share that with the community as soon as possible Um, and the second one obviously has some patent stuff so we have to um, adhere to the the wishes of the company in that instance Um, but I'm happy to answer questions if we can Um, but I hope today that we've shown you that rage is an important molecule that's um, present on immune on cells of the immune system and in beta cells in type 1 diabetes uh, that agents targeting the age rage axis could potentially delay progression to type 1 diabetes in pre we've certainly shown this in preclinical models but we we absolutely understand that many things which have been tested in you know there's some of these preclinical models have not moved into clinical trials and have not been efficacious in clinical trials um, soluble age we believe elicits uh, its protective effects via t regulatory cells and they're probably the the master at the end of the process that soluble rage, and we're certainly investigating other parts of that pathway to understand what happens before the T regulatory cells go into the pancreas and do their, you know, tolerizing or whatever else they're doing there. Um, and also we're interested in soluble rage and orally available small molecule rage antagonists um, as translating into the clinic for people with or to prevent the onset of type 1 diabetes or even we also believe that there may be some efficacy in new onset type 1 diabetes as well so we'll probably be targeting both of those things as the regulatory um, pathway also demands as well so thanks for your time there's so many people who've been involved in these studies these I hope are some of them there are probably more and I apologize if I've forgotten anybody here um, but yeah, there will have been some wonderful international collaborators involved in these studies. And when I would like to say a very big thank you to them, I would also like to say a very big thank you to our funding organisations who have very generously provided the funding for the, all of these different types of studies, which have been going for a very long time. Um, and certainly all of our participants and their families who have very generously provided samples for all of those original studies and for some studies that we're doing at the moment. So thank you very much for your time. We'd love to take questions. Fantastic. Um, we have a question here. What's the biodistribution of these antagonists? So, so one of them has some published data 
um, in terms of, so it, it stays in the circulation. So the pharmacokinetic and first in man studies are published for one of the antagonists. And so certainly you can see, find that. So that's azalirogon. So you can find that online. Um, the other one has not been injected into humans or, well, has not been taken only by humans. So I don't know what that looks like, but certainly the other um, ones are published. Great. And another question, any undesirable effects, uh, side effects expected from soluble rage or antagonists uh, on other cells? Yeah. So, so we know that, that rage is obviously involved in immune processes. So we need to be very mindful of that. Um, and it's an important part of the pro-inflammatory processes. Certainly when you look at the late phase three clinical trials with oral rage antagonists, the, the only major side effect was gastrointestinal upset. So there was some stomach aches um, and things. There wasn't really much evidence for um, more infections and the types of things that you would expect if you were potentially modulating an absolutely key immune molecule. Now, we think this is an important molecule, but we don't think it's a master regulator in that um, if we really start dampening it, we're going to really you know, start to intervene in processes that we don't want to. Um, the other advantage of this approach is that we also believe that there's a threshold where things like advanced glycation end products come in. We don't think they bind below a certain concentration um, and that has to be met um, and that we believe that if we target in the right way at the right dose, we can preserve the other pathways, which are important, like the HMGB1 rage pathway. Um, certainly there, are, there is another clinical trial in Australia at the moment called BANDIT. And so it's targeting J and K, one and two, so that, that junk, that jack stat type pathway. And that's a major signaling pathway of the receptor for advanced glycation end products, among other receptors. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how that goes. So that's a, also a, um, a particular antagonist of that. It's very interesting also, uh, similar to teplizumab, you guys are advocating or going after a targeted timeline, right? It's a very a sort of a targeted attack or targeted therapy uh, in, a, in a timely fashion. And then you're, you're kind of like weaning away from it. So that's also, yeah. um, you know, that's very, from a user standpoint, that's, uh, you know, very uh, enticing. So you don't have to have it constantly throughout your life. Another question, have you ever tried to combine S-Rage and anti-CD3 and nod mice? If so, any synergistic, synergistic effects efficacy-wise or on the Treg phenotype? Yeah, that's a really good question. So that was at front of mind. When we did the soluble rage studies originally, they were done a long time ago. Um, and then we gave them to Matthias. You might've seen it was Matthias von Harath and the group at, at Nova Nordisk in um, the US who actually repeated the studies. We gave them the compound. We didn't tell them what it was. We just said, try these doses. And they came up, came back and went, what's this? <laughs> so they were as excited as we were. Um, and so we never got with this paper to that combination therapy, but that's an absolutely key question because everything we do now in essence is probably going to be above and beyond anti-CD3 therapy. And so from the antagonist perspective, we're doing those experiments at the moment. So we're hoping to have that data pretty soon um, because yeah, I totally agree. That's a great question and really important one to address. Great. Well, Matthias uh, von Harreth is heading over to head up the DRI in Miami which I know they're very interested in, um, you know, getting things to the clinic. So perhaps another collaboration is percolating. Who knows? Um, mm -hmm. 
And uh, I'd like to thank you all again. Thank you both again and everyone who attended. Uh, this is a fascinating new approach and uh, it has a lot of uh, possibility. So we're wishing you all the best and can't wait to be uh, you know updated when uh, the papers, the next set of papers comes out and that set of data is released. Really exciting times for you both. And thanks everyone for their support. And we would love to hear your questions. Please email us if you've got other questions. We'd love to be able to, to go back and forth and get your advice as well. Obviously, we're only looking at one aspect and we'd really um, appreciate any feedback that you've got. Thank you. Fantastic. Fantastic.